there, all you unbelievable ungulates. Welcome to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined by the unbelievable Casey. How's it going, Casey? <laughs> um, I am unbelievably tired right now. <laughs> it's a miracle of life, um, but the last couple of weeks of pregnancy are like just the next level of uncomfortable, so... <laughs> So that's what I've been dealing with right now. What about you, Sarah? Well, we appreciate you being here for us. Like Casey and I were just talking <laughs> and I was like, Casey, I would have stopped by now. So, <laughs> uh, I'm doing fine. Nothing major to report. I am a little bummed. I was going to go to a farmer's market over the weekend but I ended up being kind of knocked out with a headache on one day and then there was just a lot going on. The next day, I just didn't feel like I could make it all the way out. I ended up taking my dog on a nice little walk instead, which was lovely. But That's a good start, yeah. Yes. So I got some outdoor time in, yes, but I did not. I was going to try to get some, you know, local produce since I've done yeah. absolutely nothing to progress growing my own so far. Uh, so now I just have no fruits or vegetables. Oh, no. But otherwise, I'm good. There's always next week. Always next week. That's right. <laughs> well, Sarah, last week you did a great episode on sort of the current status of rhinos internationally. And it really got me inspired to look at some of the ways that we're trying to protect rhinos. You mentioned poaching as being that swinging axe hovering over rhino populations worldwide. Um, so I want to do a little bit of a look into some some solutions that we have out there. But I wanted to ask you, because this kind of thought kept popping up, are you familiar with a phrase, the tragedy of the commons? I was not <laughs> until about Five minutes before yeah, we you did a little Google. <laughs> I looked it up and I think I probably have, you know, teachers from my past are probably like streaming in my ear right now because I probably have been familiar with the concept. But so it, basically the idea that unregulated access to a shared resource is ultimately going to result in depletion and demise. Is that <laughs> is that a fair summary? Yes, basically. I was introduced to this uh, concept my freshman year of college in an Intro to Environmental Studies Act. We played a game with M&Ms where like, you know, there's this many M&Ms and they reproduce at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, the idea is basically when we have a common resource out there, um, but not like any sort of regulation on who gets to use it or how we're keeping it sustainable. Ultimately, we will be motivated by our own self-interest to deplete the resource. We're selfish is what you're saying. Everybody's going to take what they quote unquote deserve. Right. Because I think it's kind of like what we talked about when we were talking about the Willow project, where the idea is if I don't pump the last right barrel of oil, someone else is. And why should they get to do that? If I don't take this resource, someone else is. And why should they get to do it? Why are they better than me? And so, yes, the tragedy of the commons is that the common resource will go away if we use it without regulation. And that's what would happen if we just let rhinos <laughs> be unprotected and let demand sort of figure itself out and, and trade in the horn mm -hmm. is ultimately we would see the end of rhinos. And so I wanted to see if you were familiar. It's a very like niche environmental <laughs> term, basically. But thanks for helping me with a little definition here. And we're going to dive in in just a moment. All right, guys, we are back with the main portion of our episode. Sarah, let's let's get us started out a little bit. What is the state of rhinos worldwide? Where are we at with rhinos? Uh, it's... It's not great. We talked last week, we went through our five species and the best one that we have in terms of ICUCN classification is near threatened. I'm already forgetting. That's, Correct. that's our yep. white rhinos are near threatened, right? And we have other species of rhino that are critically endangered, including our Sumatran rhinos, my personal favorite that have an estimated population of less than 50 right now. 
severely critically endangered if I may create a new IUCN category. <laughs> it's bad. It is not not good out there. Um, all of the world's species of rhinos are threatened by poaching, specifically for their horns. That is the main reason. Even though these are really big animals, like it's not generally they're not primarily hunted for their meat, for example. It is the horns on their faces that they're hunted for. Estimating the worth of rhino horn varies because it's generally illegal to, to trade it. So you have to kind of guesstimate. Um, the most common number I saw is that it is worth about $60,000 a kilo. Yes, that was what I was seeing the other week as well. Yes, um, which is comparable or more expensive than gold or cocaine by weight. <laughs> which are the two things it was compared to frequently. Um, some of the estimations were a little bit lower. Some have appreciated based on inflation up to over 70000 a kilo. So it's not 100% clear you can't go on Amazon and buy rhino horn and see what the fair market price is for it. As you mentioned, Sarah, protection from poaching costs a lot of money and requires constant vigilance. And there has been increases in funding for protection for rhinos over time. However, we're not seeing a decrease in poaching over time. We've actually, in the last couple years, seen a general increase or maintaining level of poaching, specifically with white rhinos, who have the largest population left. Protection also has a little bit of a ethical quandary going on there, because you're typically protecting them with lethal force, like you're having basically a militaristic guard out there. And it can further a colonial dynamic within their range countries where the conservation organizations and governments are in a dispute with oftentimes people of the underclass who are trying to make money off of this and puts them in, in violent conflict over this resource. And so that's something I've seen cited that I cannot speak super deeply on, but I felt like it was worth mentioning. It is worth mentioning because I've never really thought about it like that before, although certainly the militaristic aspect is there. I mean, there are these are dedicated, guarded, armed units. Like, these are people who are out there with guns to specifically be on the lookout for poachers, basically. So there is, yeah, it's a pretty intense thing and an intense feel. I do think at least sometimes, and I don't know if this is a thing that has changed over time or or not, and maybe it should be a bigger focus, is that there is, I think, oftentimes education associated with this where, okay, we do have these armed units, but part of their role we want to be to go out and be a part of the community and educate people and come from the community as well. Yes, I mean poachers former poachers have been employed yes. then as enforcement and they're the ones who know the roots best they're the ones who understand the strategies for poaching the animals best um, but it does kind of speak to what the motivation is for poaching in the first place on that ground level in those range countries which is generally economic Money. instability yeah. so if we can't address that issue and we're going towards this kind of violent approach yeah you end up with these continuing dynamics. Absolutely. So, lots of stuff going on there. Selling rhino horn is internationally illegal under CITES. So that's the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. Um, it became illegal, I think, in 1993. And it's Appendix 1 for most species, which is like very, very strict regulation. And Appendix 2 for the white rhino, which allows the trade of live animals and some trophy hunting. Punishments include fines and imprisonment. For in countries like South Africa. Um, so there are consequences outside of just like being caught immediately while you're trying to poach the rhino. If you get caught with rhino horn, you can get charged with illegal possession of illicit wildlife parts. So with this continued poaching, despite all these resources going into it, despite all of these laws, we still have several species of rhino, arguably all species of rhino, that might go extinct within the next couple decades. So our current approach arguably isn't working to the extent that we need it to. But what are our other options? And so today I wanted to go into what specifically one of those other options is rhino farming. So Sarah, I wanted to get your initial reaction when I say farming rhinos. How do you feel? What do you think of 
We've talked about this before, I think. For me, it's just incongruous. Like, we don't farm rhinos. Rhinos are not a domesticated species, first of all. So there's already a difference when I think farms. I think horses and cattle and pigs Mm -hmm. and sheep, all of which are domesticated animals. And the rhino is very much a wild animal. And so to me, it's already... And I know we do fish farming and things like that. But to me, there's already a, a separation in my brain. Secondly, it just feels wrong to me. We're going to talk about the potential pros of this. And I know that they exist. But the immediate feeling in my body is it's wrong. These are endangered species. We need to be protecting them in the wild, not worrying about how we can give ourselves access to this resource. I think there's like an initial ick factor for sure mm-hmm. from like my my gut reaction is like, but, but can't we just not kill them? <laughs> and why does exactly. this have to be an option out there? But our whole like, let's establish protected areas for them and try and put money into making sure that they can breed and protect them from their threats is already sort of the approach that we're taking along with changing attitudes within the demand circle, which we'll talk about as well. And it's not doing exactly the extent that what we need it to do. And it's a huge, uh, it's not a money pit, but it is a huge sink of conservation funds. And so we're going to talk a little bit about rhino farming and what the argument is for it, and then what the argument is against it as well, outside of our initial gut reaction, which is, yuck, (laughs) Um, at least for me. So only the southern white rhino population is large enough that farming can really be an option. We've talked about like the Sumatran rhino. We're just trying to get them to breed at all and not being super successful. But southern white rhinos have successfully reproduced in human care in a zoo setting and also in a farm setting for a long time. They are relatively social, as you talked about before. So they would react better in like a natural history standpoint Mm -hmm. to being housed in slightly closer quarters, not saying in like a factory farm situation, but like in a social situation than some of the other rhino species. 80% of white rhinos live in South Africa. And that is also the place where they are poached the most, both from public areas and from private ranches that own a bunch of rhinos. So that brings us to John Hume, who I found out about a couple years ago in about 2017 because he was making the news more. And John Hume is a rhino farmer. He is a former hotel mogul. So he is like independently wealthy. He's a South African. And he started, he bought his first rhino, I believe in 1993 and started a project called the Platinum Rhino Project. And it is a 21,000-acre breeding ranch that opened in 2009. He now owns 2,000 white rhinos. I can't even comprehend that. Keeping 2,000 rhinos. 2,000. It's a lot. NPR said that's 13 to 15% of the world's total white rhino population. I just immediately have a problem with that. (laughs) It is. It is amazing. Like we imagine when we talk about endangered species populations of like they're them living out in like a national park or some sort of like uncontacted wild range. Nope. Like 15% of them live on this guy's property. Well, and Casey, we mentioned last week, and I this was not, I didn't yeah. dive into this side of the topic, but I did come across that piece of information that there were a, a probably a, a high percentage of rhinos on private lands, but that was, I had sort of just come across it and whatever I was reading had made the comment that not everywhere can you privately own rhinos. So in some places you might have rhinos on your land, but they're not actually your rhinos. But some places right. you can. And own based on rhinos. all of these articles, he owns these rhinos. And he genuinely like puts a lot of resources into these rhinos. These aren't just like rhinos that happen to live on his land. They have a stud book, so they breed them intentionally. They try and pair up Mm-hmm. Animals make sure to keep track of their genetics. They have vet care. Um, so they have a whole staff of vets. And the ranch has about 200 baby rhinos a year, which was his Goodness initial gracious. goal. Yeah. And he's successfully breeding these rhinos. 
His goal has been to create a sustainable alternative to current conservation methods by sustainably harvesting the horn that, as we talked about, regrows. And you can, his his argument, if you take all of this as his face value, his argument is that you can fund the conservation of rhinos. You can do it by just funding, being able to make this farm financially sustainable and donating some of those funds to towards protecting them on natural lands. And you can undercut the black market trade, taking down the price and therefore creating a sustainable, legal and ethical market because these horns are harvested without killing the rhino and allowing them to regrow, making it a renewable resource. Thought number one is that, so he's talking about undercutting the black market, and this is an area where I probably just don't have enough economic knowledge. But to me, that it feels very much like what we mentioned last week about this idea of flooding the market with synthetic rhino horn. Mm -hmm. And people can't even agree on whether or not that's a good idea for a couple of reasons. But one of them is that we don't know what that will do to the market. Mm -hmm. We don't know what increasing the amount of rhino horn on the market will actually do. And some people think that that would actually drive up the demand of horn, which would cyclically lead to an increase in poaching. So that's one thought is I'm I'm not necessarily seeing where that this is any different than that. I'm just absorbing them. We're going to talk more about that in general. Yep. Perfect. Great. Now I talked about that and I don't remember (laughs) what my other other thoughts were. So keep going and maybe they'll come back to me. Okay. So um, at the time that his project opened in 2009, same year, in response to a dramatic increase in poaching. So in 2009, uh, I think it was 2007 is when they really saw the spike of poaching start. 2009, South Africa said, all right, that's it. We're not going to allow you to trade rhino horn domestically. So it was already internationally illegal, but domestically it was legal in South Africa up until 2009 when this man bought a bunch of rhinos and they said, nope, you can't sell it anymore, which basically stranded Mr. Hume and other private ranchers who owned rhinos. And they began to stockpile the horn because they were allowed to own it because they own these rhinos, Mm -hmm. but they were not allowed to sell it to anyone. In 2015, um, Hume and Johan Kruger sued the South African government, claiming that it was their basically constitutional right to be able to sell a renewable resource. I think there was also sort of a procedural claim as well that this ban really was enacted too quickly without public comment, without that sort of stuff. And it was struck down around that time, but the government appealed it up until 2017 when officially the domestic ban on trading rhino horn was lifted. So 2017, it became legal to sell rhino horn within South Africa. You cannot sell it across international borders due to CITES, but you can sell it within the country. Which is not where the demand is. Mm-hmm. So this was all sort of around Hume also holding a private auction for about 500 kilos of rhino horn. He has a lot more than that. I think he had like six tons at the time. A lot of rhino horn. But he set up a private auction. Details of the auction were not disclosed. There was a lot of like, you had to pay a certain amount to get information about like the lot sizes and what was actually being sold. But he claimed that you had to have a permit under South African law and therefore you had to be from South Africa um, to participate. However, Save the Rhino, which is one organization that I will note is against legalizing the trade, noted that the auction website had Vietnamese and Mandarin language translation options, which suggested, as you said, Sarah, that the market that he's aiming for is not domestic because there is not really a demand for rhino horn in South Africa. It is mainly in Vietnam and China. And so this auction having these translation elements suggested that it was opening it to it wasn't like you can get the like you know how google will translate your web page mm-hmm. in like every language that's apparently not what we're talking about we're talking about like they constructed the website so that people in range country outside of the range countries could access the information even if they're not the direct purchaser and the auction, according to Hume, had lower bids and fewer bidders than expected, which they blame on the government's delay in authorizing the legal selling of 
the horn and like some of the controversy surrounding the opening up of the auction in the first place. So they sort of blame the South African government's reluctance to make this like a, an acceptable form of trade. He has an in, estimates he's invested over $150 million of his own money to feed, give proper vet care, and protect the rhinos with protection services because he's basically got his own armed guard and his herds do get poached. They do get targeted as sure. a source of illegal rhino horn. He said it requires about $170,000 per month just to protect them. So it's very expensive. And as rhinos become more scarce in the wild, private ranchers are becoming increasingly targeted by poachers because that's where they're available. So I think it was announced in February, but as of April, Hume's farm is for sale for $10 million. <laughs> he claims he's basically exhausted all of his resources, that the farm is not financially viable because of legal restrictions on his ability to trade out the rhino horn in the way that he would like it to. And so he's not able to financially sustain the project, and he hopes that a wealthy conservationist will step in and continue to fulfill his vision, protect the rhinos, but be able to eventually make this a viable conservation method by making it a profitable venture. And some of the things that he's brought up, these aren't exact quotes because it was on a video and <laughs> I wasn't typing fast enough, is basically, why can you shear a sheep and sell the wool and not cut off the rhino's horn and sell that horn while you're keeping the rhino alive? And the problem is that we've made the rhinos more valuable dead than alive. It's an impactful quote, right? Or, or mm -hmm. estimation of a quote. But I don't, like I said before, I don't, it's not apples to apples exactly. They're different animals. There's differences in our ability to properly care for them. I mean, I would love to see this place. I would love to see the setup that he's got going on, how it's done, what the dehorning process looks like. You can watch videos of that. I will say, if you're interested, go on YouTube. And I, you I will that, be yeah. for sure. Because I, I wonder about those things. I mean, I've sheared a sheep before and, it's, you know, you sit them down and you shear them and you let them go. And, it, you know, I just I wonder about welfare aspects of it. But I he does make you think with the second part of that quote that we have made them more valuable dead than alive. And I do think that that is part of it that would need to be addressed with this too, because I do remember reading some things from last week that wild rhino horn is just often thought of as better sometimes, whether it's by folks who are taking it for traditional medicine or using it for ornamental purposes. And again, I don't know the ins and outs of how the black market right. trade for rhino horn works. So I don't know how they're knowing these things or what they're being told, but that if farmed rhino horn were to become a thing, people might still be wanting to pay more for wild horn in comparison. I think uh, I didn't come across that argument in this particular context. I have come across that in big cat um, body parts mm -hmm. because there are such things as tiger and lion farms um, where they'll trade bones and I've heard that argument that like people don't really want the farmed ones they would prefer the wild ones in the context of the research here we'll talk about it in a little bit I did not find that as a concern and it might just be because we don't have a really good understanding of specifically like what the all the drivers are of right. this market because it's illegal it's so it's it's a lot of speculation on things what i i definitely the, the thought the quote here really jogged my thoughts i think partially because yes you're right they're not domesticated but domestication is a spectrum like there's you know when when does an animal get to be domesticated and how do we think about domesticated animals versus wild animals what they deserve what sort of protections they get what their inherent value is i think about that sometimes with like farms versus bush meat versus like you know hunting there's a lot of ways to think about the spectrums of how our attitudes culturally impact how we think wildlife and domestic life should be treated well i think for me the only reason i i 
bring up the domestication thing is is the welfare sure component, and that's certainly an issue. We're yeah. being less accustomed to people, whereas. But I mean, I guess I've been on, you know, beef cattle farms where, you know, you put them in the chute and if you didn't, you wouldn't be doing anything with them if you didn't have that chute. So, right. And we just talked about last week how rhinos like scratches. (laughs) So, like, there are certain animals who have habituated, not domesticated, but habituated. And that's part of the reason why I would want to see what he's got going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this poses an interesting question to me. Should we legalize the trade of captive bred sourced rhino horn we are not talking about wild rhinos we are not talking about the tragedy of the common situation where we should just blanket legalize it and it'll work itself out it has implications for wild rhinos but we're talking about a regulated trade which has been proposed by south africa it's been proposed by zimbabwe and china and lots of places to try and figure out this poaching issue so I wanted to dive into the arguments for and against it with some some examples from studies and other wildlife and things like that. So this is not just like a speculative entirely argument. I wanted to use some data from the real world because I wasn't sure at the end of the day before doing this episode how much I could argue on either side because I didn't feel like I had. I just had my gut feeling that I didn't like it. And so I wanted to to see what the implications might be. So obviously for John Hume, the unspoken part of this is that this man is a rich man who would like to probably stay rich. And so like, I think that should just be spoken out loud is that he might have a heart of gold as a conservationist, but this is also a way for him to make his investment financially sustainable. This is sort of the argument within it though, is that like, how do we harness capitalism to be on our side for wildlife protection? So arguments for legalizing the trade, Sarah, why would we legalize the trade? You've mentioned regulated trade as driving down prices, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that's the thought or the idea behind this is the supply and demand issue. So if we are increasing the supply high enough, then we're going to drive down prices. If there's an an overabundance of supply for what the demand is, then we're going to drive down prices. Yeah. Basic econ 101, right? Like you got those two little Little lines. Yeah. Yeah. That's about all I remember from econ. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So yeah, let's look into this argument a little bit. Uh, There is a case that this argument worked for because to me it was very speculative and it, it continues to be speculative. But as far as a example of wildlife being farmed to decrease poaching there is an there is a successful example and that is crocodiles yeah so internationally crocodilian populations were decimated due to trade for their skins and when in the 1960s and 70s those populations were down very very low and cites again comes in and and says, you can't trade them internationally. We got to protect them. Um, There started to be farming for crocodiles. And while trade is regulated under CITES and poaching is illegal, there are are now legal breeding operations worldwide for lots of different species of crocodilian. And these legal breeding operations export from 30 countries. It's like 150 million skins a year or something like that. And all skins are numbered and regulated and have to have like appropriate paperwork to get through the system. And what we've seen is that there has been a rebound in crocodilian populations because poaching is not as big of a threat to them anymore. Yeah. And I, it's a good point because I know all of this to be true. And while I don't still sort of love the idea behind it, like it's not one of my favorite things to talk about. There's less of that ick factor because it's been this way, you know, as long as I've known it, okay. like this yeah. has been in existence, I think, whereas it just does not feel normal to me to farm a rhino. And I think that because it's not a normal thing, I'm, I don't want it to come to a place where we need to make it a normal thing, I guess. So you don't feel like crocodilian farming should 
be normalized either you just uh, well feel i'm like just saying i think it's, it already is like it right. is and so you're not seeing me out here railing against it because i know that it's happened and i know that it's had positive outcomes right so whether or not i like that it exists i can't argue against that outcome yeah i was on the crocodilian specialist group for the iucm's website lots of good things in the show notes today because we're not experts in my try and source everything there um but they talked about um yeah there were some welfare concerns for the farmers because the skin is the most important part of the animal that they have to make sure that they have good enough conditions that they're not getting in like a bunch of abrasions on their belly Mm -hmm. which is the very uh most valuable part of the skin they have to try and skew towards species that are more social like the siamese crocodile is a better farmed species than the saltwater crocodile because they are less territorial and so there's obviously some trial and error even though saltwater crocodiles apparently have some of the most valuable skin because they're big and less bony the the farmers have some incentive to protect the parts that they like the byproduct of the industry is meat which is also exported into places like china as well and at the end of the day, they have saved crocodilian populations in lots of parts of the world. So, so as much as the ick factor goes, right, it worked. <laughs> exactly. So I think that that's good data to have. The caveat here is that this is not, it's once again, it's not an exact one for one. The exact yes. drivers of the rhino horn trade are going to be different. The way that this works are going is is going to be different. So... You can't be like, oh, this worked for crocodilians. We absolutely need to do this for rhinos. That's not necessarily the case, but it is good evidence to have. Yes. And we'll talk about maybe some issues with that in a moment. Um, Another argument is that the people who currently benefit from poaching rhinos, like there is a supply chain. The person who is killing the rhino is not the person making $60,000 per kilo of rhino horn. They're the ones hunting it. They're generally getting it to someone who's a middleman who's getting it out of the country. That might get it to another middleman who's getting it into a different country, who's getting it to someone who's selling it. And as it goes through that supply chain, the price is increased. So the Mm -hmm. person who is initially hunting that rhino and just trying to feed their family, it's not the only person making money off of that rhino horn. And lots of criminal organizations, terrorist organizations also make money off of it. So a lot of the more organized parts of the poaching industry, I guess for lack of a better word, network, can be connected to people who are also doing things like uh, trafficking firearms and humans and drugs and supporting terrorism. So uh, terrorist organizations like Al-Shabaab and the Lord's Resistance Army in Africa have both been shown to be making money off of things like the rhino trade and the elephant trade. So yeah, those are definitely places that if you can undercut them by having some sort of way to take away income from them, yeah, it would be better to have that going through legal and more ethical hands. Because again, the argument is is that if you farm them, unlike the crocodiles, which you have to kill for their skins, the rhinos should theoretically be staying alive. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not getting killed. And the quote-unquote bad people aren't making the money. It's the people keeping them alive that would be making the money from them. And theoretically, you could use that money as part, maybe a tax or something on the trade to then fund the protection of those rhinos in wild places. That's basically all I could think of for arguments about why we should legalize the trade and based on the articles I could find. And I mean, I don't think you need much more than that. I think that that is the argument that makes the most sense. Like, if this is going to be a thing that happens, those are that's exactly why. It just brings up a lot of questions to me about how exactly it would work. And as we mentioned, you know, this one individual, Hume, is that how you say his last name? Hume, John I think Hume? so, yeah. But it was a very wealthy individual. So my question is, how does this even become an industry in part, you know, if we're where are people getting all this money to start their rhino farms first of all that's a great question because i mean that's something that's brought up frequently in the legalization of marijuana in the united states so another illegal product that has mostly just gone through a 
like it's gonna happen anyway through Mm -hmm. a a legal lens so why don't we have a legal way to do it and we'll tax it and we'll make things better but who in the places where they've made it legal have mostly benefited from it people who already had the big resources to invest in like large-scale marijuana farms versus people who in the first place like in this case would be the people maybe poaching the rhinos in the first place are not necessarily going to be the ones then employed by the rhino industry they're still going to suffer on the right penal end versus benefiting from the economic end that's a great great point that i didn't think about so let's go into like the arguments against it overall my first one is the one we've talked about already Ick. <laughs> i don't <laughs> I don't like the idea of having, like, I just wish we could all get along and we could live in a world where animals didn't have to die and that people could just live in harmony. And obviously this is not the world we live in, but the more relevant is the animal welfare of the individuals in the farming situation. From all the articles I could find, no one was criticizing Hume's animal welfare. Like no one was like, and he keeps rhinos in a crappy location. I don't know if they weren't doing that sort of level of research. They're more making the argument about his philosophy of the case, but that was never pointed out as like a major issue with how he was running his operation. Sure. It would just be something that would have to be addressed. Oh, absolutely. Sure. If this became an industry, you know? Absolutely. Because I was like, well, I mean, you seemed to claim at least to have very good intentions. Again, let's take you at face value. Let's say you, you seem to love rhinos and that's great. And you want them to have good lives and protect them out in the wild. Excellent. Not everyone getting into this industry would necessarily have those same priorities. And yes, you have good farmers. You have farmers who treat their animals poorly. How are we regulating this? But other arguments against is that we have actually done similar things with other illegal animal parts before. Um, Specifically, it's compared often to the ivory trade. So legalizing a regulated ivory trade did not reduce poaching. We actually have an example of that. And elephants and rhinos are more comparable than elephants and crocodiles, or uh, rhinos and crocodiles. Crocodiles can have like 20 plus eggs at a time, sometimes way more than that. Their life histories are more quick. We've talked about how rhinos only reproduce like one infant every two to three years. Elephants are more similar in that way where they have long life histories with slow reproduction. But also I think the trade is more comparable or or some of the same drivers, I feel like, in terms of at least the sort of ornamental and sort of pride value, I guess, that these materials have. Yes, but like, I mean, crocodile skins are a luxury item, which is kind of how you could classify these two. And that, but that was sort of the idea. Um, Basically, in in 1999 and 2008, there was a legalized kind of one-time sale in China and Japan where they shipped out collected stockpiles of ivory from like deceased elephants, whether they were seized poaching stuff or just naturally collected from the bodies of naturally deceased elephants they ship them over there and they're like okay because this is i I can't say this is their reasoning but my thought was because this is not a something we consume frequently it's not like it's a food item it's an ornamental value item like you said if we sell all of this legally no elephants were killed in this particular sale of ivory because they're already dead and have been dead. This should satisfy the demand within these countries and create its own little tiny ecosystem of legal ivory. And that should reduce demand and drive down prices for the black market of ivory that is going on in China. After those sales, there was an ink in 2000, after the sale in 2008, there was an increase in poaching of elephants in their range countries by 66%. And it attributed, attributed, to the increased interest of people now seeing that ivory is an option and the reduced stigma knowing that there is legal options for ivory after the legal sale. The U.S. is the second largest market for black market ivory, so we are right up in that business right there. And basically they found that before it was like, oh, well, sure, maybe I'd like some ivory, but it's super illegal and like, you know, I I, I don't want to be a part of something illegal and when they limitedly made parts of it legal 
people are like, oh, you can have ivory now. Great. And it maybe didn't matter as much about whether or not it was illegal because there were legal ivory out there. And my understanding, and I wasn't able to find as much of this, is that the legal ivory trade gave some legitimate cover to illegal right. ivory ivory trade because you could use paperwork from legal ivory to cover up for illegal ivory and the distinguishing between those different items became very difficult for law enforcement. Um, several Southern African countries have proposed the legalization of ivory trade based on overpopulations of animals, which we talked about with like the black rhino in some areas. There's too many of them for that particular area. And for elephants, they can cause damage to humans and crops and things like that. So their argument was this is a way for us to be able to sustainably manage our herds, which are too big. Um, but population biologists have done studies based on the population dynamics of these herds and found that the amount of ivory you could sustainably produce from harvesting, and that means killing, elephants or collecting the naturally deceased animals' bones would not come anywhere close to meeting the actual demand mm -hmm. for it. And so it would just, again, provide cover for illegal ivory. And that is an issue that you would see with rhinos as well, potentially. John Hume's argument is that it's a renewable resource, but you're starting to open up this demand, reduce the stigma again. Yeah, I feel like my fear as I think this through and I've got a lot of thoughts bouncing around <laughs> and so they're they're not all going to come out at the right time or coherently I fear but I think that the fear that I'm starting to develop in my mind as we talk about this if rhino farming were to become a thing is that we would eventually just end up with only farmed rhinos because I just mm. don't see unless we sufficiently also change attitudes and behaviors which still needs to be part of this conversation regardless mm -hmm. we are not going to get to a point where we're able to keep enough demand and if these rhino farms were funneling money into the better protection of their herds i then... think part of the argument is that they're also funneling money I, sure i know that they of, yeah. that's the argument but i'm just saying if farming were to become legalized they are going to need to make sure that their herds are protected. And so if it got to the point where farms were better protected than wild rhinos, I just, I think that it would still, we'd ultimately still be seeing that decline in wild populations. It's, uh, it's just a yeah. fear that I have yeah. in my brain. And that is, that uh, this is of course not- But we are seeing a decline in wild populations. Sure. But I'm just saying like, this is, yeah. has become hypothetical in my brain and I don't really have evidence to- back that up okay well let's let's look a little bit at the, what the drivers are for rhino horn because that is that's the end argument is like how do we reduce demand based on supply and with the ivory trade what we found is that increasing the supply actually increased the demand there's an article from manga bay in the uh, show notes talking about how it is not the price of the luxury good that has impact on demand as much as the income of the end consumer. Mm -hmm. So I think about like diamonds. If diamonds were less expensive, I don't think we'd really want them that much less. I think we would just more people would buy them because you'd be able to afford them more, mm -hmm. right? That's how yeah. I feel about that at least. So let's go into the two main reasons people use horn, which is traditional medicine and as a status symbol. And if we dive into the status symbol first, because again, that's kind of similar to elephant ivory and crocodile bags. Rhino horn is purchased as a symbol of status. Uh, one of the main countries cited within this is Vietnam. And it is either kept by the consumer or it is given as a gift. Typically, the people who are buying it tend to be wealthy and educated people. So these are not just like I think sometimes as conservation educators, we lean on the lack of knowledge of people sure. as being the reason they're doing it. These are, are very smart people who are very successful. They just have a cultural attachment to rhino horn as a symbol of status. So as there's been a rise in income for the middle class in Vietnam, that has been a cited reason for increase in demand for rhino horn and therefore the increase in poaching. This is supported by a survey done by traffic.org, which they talked to people in areas of Vietnam who either currently buy rhino horn and how they use it and who the de demographic is. Again, oftentimes wealthy, successful, educated people. 
oftentimes like I think they they like quoted basically like maybe a typical buyer would be a successful businessman in his mid 40s and he has a mistress and he's well educated <laughs> um, which I suppose might be another status symbol because it is in a lot of countries to be able to support people uh, outside of your family as well. This survey said that they found like that buyer, but they also found what they considered intended buyers, which is I would buy Rhino Horn if I could. Mm -hmm. Because again, like the person that is buying Rhino Horn is someone I would aspire to be. And if I had money and when I get my money, that is what I will do. And so there is a market of people who it's not like, well, if only we could just satisfy the people currently buying Rhino Horn with the legal of Rhino Horn. It's we would satisfy the people who currently buy it, but we would also have to satisfy the people who right. would buy it if they could afford it. And yeah. more of them can afford it now. So that is sort of the status symbol element of it. Traditional medicine, I feel like, is the one we talk about more, though. And partially it's because I think that we have a little bit of bias in the U.S. that this is something so far outside of our cultural practices that it seems... Like, it's not a good reason for it. Um, but again, as we talked about last week, we've got plenty of our own silly things. Yeah, that we... I actually think this is <laughs> this very is more... comparable to some of the things that we and do. honestly, like, more rooted in cultural tradition than lots of other things yes. that we do as well. Like, fads that we go through are much more fleeting than something that is yes. this culturally ingrained. So, absolutely something that is part of the culture over in Asia and just as as relevant as certain practices that we do for our health as well. So rhino horn under traditional Chinese medicine, and I have a article from a paper where basically they talked to a bunch of traditional Chinese medicine practicers from a bunch of different levels. So my understanding is mostly based on this paper, which I found really fascinating, that traditional Chinese medicine is practiced by people who are just like doing it from their house all the way up to hospitals in China. Mm -hmm. It is integrated with what we consider biomedicine, which they also call Western medicine. So same sort of things that we might see at the hospital is then integrated with certain aspects of traditional yeah. Chinese medicine as well. So it's just part of their healthcare system. Um, typically, rhino horn under traditional Chinese medicine is prescribed to treat many afflictions like acute infections to clarify the blood, viruses, and it includes treatments for SARS and COVID-19, for example. Now, in 1993, when they banned the international trade of rhino horn, China took rhino horn out of their like traditional Chinese medicine handbook protocol, basically. But it is still used to a certain extent in some areas. It is also used in Vietnam as well. Surveys done in Vietnam suggest that rhino horn is seen by at least part of the population as a potential cure for cancer. And this is a country where they might not have access to treatment as well as we do in the United States for cancer. And so if you're like, well, I can't get radiation, but I can get rhino horn, you're yeah. going to go with the rhino horn. The study that I looked at has a really this this they surveyed a bunch of these folks who participate in tr uh, traditional Chinese medicine across different levels within the healthcare system. And they asked them what their attitudes were on the legalization of the horn trade, about what their attitudes are on, like, whether they thought it would increase the trade. I found the answers, and maybe if you dove into what they were individually, a little confusing, because uh, they interviewed 84 people within the, the Gongdong region, which is, I guess, an area that they, they felt was most relevant based on being one of the largest by population size and income who might be able to afford rhino horn. The answers were super diverse. Almost half of the people were supportive of the existing ban, but also a majority of people were in favor of the proposals to legalize a regulated trade. And like based on the numbers that they gave, some of those people both were like, it's cool that it's banned and it would be cool if they legalize the trade as well. So these are not like mutually exclusive groups of people. A majority of them, but not by a whole lot, thought that legalized trade would not increase the use of rhino horn. And their sort of argument was based on a proposal we'll talk about in a moment, but basically that there are only certain things they would prescribe rhino horn for anyway. And so the uh, there wouldn't be a huge amount of demand based on 
what you're already sort of integrating with biomedicine mm-hmm. and other remedies as well. So these are all interviews with people who administer medicine. These aren't yes. the, the these are not the con- and consumers. The, yes, yeah. these are not the patients. These are like the medical staff. Yeah. Um. But again, it seemed like it was across a variety of contexts. Like for here, you might interview with someone who's like in a hospital versus a clinic versus a doula. Right. Like this seems to right. be across all those spectrums from like very formalized to less formalized. Some of them said, Hey, even like I'm in support of this ban because it also made us be more creative with what we use on other remedies, or I'm in support of this ban because even if it was legal, I think it's unethical to be able to uh, administer rhino horn because of animal welfare issues. So there is, this is not, a like unified thought within this community of people who are administering the medicine there's a very a, a good diversity of thought within that community of how rhino horn should be used and whether it should be used and even within articles where you see like how it is used you will see it attributed to a lot of different medical mm-hmm. conditions that are are not the same thing and it seems to depend on region and beliefs and age group and things like that so this is not a unified sort of thought process entirely. I'm there seems to be a um if you read the article it's super cool, but there's like a unified thought about what traditionally it's treated and then there are some new thoughts from like the cultural perspective of what it might treat as well. But I mean, if your loved one's dying, you're going to try anything you can to help solve the issue. And if there's something that you think strongly will help, that is going to be a reason to go after something like rhino horn, even if you have um, conflicting opinions about it. But you brought up, Sarah, how do you regulate this? Like, how do we figure out who who's taking care of these animals, but also, like, who gets to administer it? And uh, China actually proposed legalizing domestic trade of horn within china as well this came up a lot last week and i had to do a double take because there were articles a flood of articles that came out proclaiming that they had done it but quickly to realize that as i know you're about to say that this was proposed and then quickly paused it was yeah it was walked back real fast yeah (laughs) um so china actually proposed the limited legalization of rhino horde trade domestically you might be thinking but china doesn't really have rhinos (laughs) domestically so how are they doing that um basically it was from just like john hume has a farm proposed that captive animal farms Mm -hmm. specifically not zoos so this is not something that they're saying like and we'll go to the zoos and we'll take their horns like specifically captive um rhino breeding ranches and things uh could supply ground rhino horn so not something that you would then carve into a statue for status symbol specifically for traditional chinese medicine would have to be prescribed in a medical setting by qualified traditional chinese medicine practitioners for specific conditions so like this is a fairly narrow scope of how they would legalize farmed rhino horn the proposal as you mentioned was quickly paused (laughs) it was there was huge public outcry from basically all major conservation organizations that have anything to do with rhinos were not pleased about this even the they when they did this study that i was talking about the interviews happened right around when they they legalized it for a hot second and even the practitioners a bunch of them hadn't even heard of it so it wasn't like so well publicized that everybody knew about it even though it was a relevant thing to a lot of their careers but the ones when they asked specifically about it talked about questions behind well who can who qualifies as a qualified practitioner of chinese traditional medicine what conditions are they going to count as conditions you would treat with this and even if they did a lot of how severe the those conditions might be those people probably already are going to a hospital and using biomedicine to treat that condition versus waiting for, because of like it being so narrowly applied, going to a more localized source to get the just the traditional medicine approach. So 
they had a lot of questions in there of how that was supposed to do it. And they weren't sure it, it might increase demand. But based on these regulations, it seems super unclear about who's allowed to do this and where it's coming from and who's going to get it. So the argument remains in China, though, that legal or not, there's not a lot of good enforcement of current Chinese laws surrounding rhino horn or other illegal wildlife trade. So there's plenty of wildlife products that end up in China. And it seems like there's not necessarily either complete awareness of what's legal or or illegal, which we could say the same in the United States, um, but also that there's inconsistency in how the law is applied and the severity of the consequences of being caught with these things. So overall, there's not as much of a deterrent as you might think by making it illegal. Sarah, can you think of anything else that I missed within our arguments against category? I think we've touched upon everything as we've gone along. I have feasibility issues for people being able to do this. I have regulation issues. I have uncertainty of success issues. And if we did this and then, you know, I have concerns about what rolling it back would look like if it wasn't going to work. So I I think there's it's just a, a lot of interconnected things. It's a complicated issue. But no, I feel like we hit on it at some point for the most part. I, you know, having all these conservation organizations basically say we are against the domestic trade legally, both in the John Hume situation and in the China policy. I wanted to know what their alternatives were of what they were proposing, because we haven't saved the rhino. We put on so many, so much money into saving the rhino. We haven't done it. And like people are working so hard and making strides and made a lot of good strides for a long time, but we're still seeing the same threats loom over them. So what are they doing? A lot of this argument hinges on changing the demand by changing the price and accessibility of rhino horn to drive down the poaching. But current conservation organizations are trying to change demand by changing attitudes at the actual source of who is buying it. So we talked about last week, like Yao Ming and Jackie Chan were part of awareness campaigns. I guess they did an awareness campaign where they had um, Chinese celebrities biting their nails and saying like, there's nothing in rhino rhino horn that isn't in your fingernails and try to do like a social media campaign for it. Um, traffic.org is using a campaign called the Chi Initiative where they try mm-hmm. and frame success based on on your hard work. Like you're not getting successful based on having rhino horn or other like things outside of yourself. You are going to get there through hard work and that is how you show this. It's an appeal to the ego a little bit. It's an appeal to the ego, but it also appeals to like the values of those people because yeah, what oh, they yeah, found. For sure. Yeah. What they found is that a lot of the people, when you're like, listen, you're killing rhinos, they'll say, poachers are killing rhinos. I'm just buying what's available to me. Or um, dinosaurs went extinct, so rhinos might go extinct. They live far away from me. Why do I care? <laughs> and that that is how they feel, whether you like those arguments or not. Arguing that rhinos are valuable because they exist on planet Earth with us, which might be an argument that Sarah and I respond to, is not the argument that people buying rhino horn respond to. And so saying, like, you value wealth, you value success, how do we appeal to that? And, you're, you know, achieving something on your own accord mm-hmm. versus trying to frame it in an environmental context. Right. And One of the other studies that I looked at showed that people who are connected to nature tend to follow environmental laws more closely, which seems very logical, but is like something studied. So they tried to measure like these populations connectedness to to nature overall and talking about that as a avenue for creating populations on Earth in general of people who care about the inherent value of nature and that changing their attitude as well. So like coming at it from what their values currently are and also trying to change their values by connecting them to add this set of environmental consciousness as well. What we'll probably can see see happening continuously here is we will see rhinos continue to be poached. <laughs> we will see continued protection for rhinos in the wild with 
the same sort of methods as before. One of the things that they talked about as a general issue that could help is just being able to better enforce existing laws for people, making sure that like the punishments from them are very clear. They happen quickly, basically, and match the crime that is committed in a lot of the countries where they're consuming them. There's there's holes in this enforcement system, which make that not a deterrence. But outside of that, we're also probably going to continue to see we've seen some southern African countries threaten to pull out of the CITES agreement altogether based on how strict the wildlife trade regulations are for species that specifically are found in their range countries and that they are having trouble regulating by themselves, um, both economically and population wise. So I think this is going to be a continued discussion, and I don't think it's going to necessarily be a like, yes, we're going to all legalize farmed trade, but also we won't necessarily see a status quo in all of the countries that are impacted by this forever. That is my concluding thought on that. (laughs) I think, you know, there's, there's compelling arguments. It's an interesting discussion. I think where my heart still ultimately lies after talking about all of this is I would rather see any resources that might be directed towards something like farming directed towards filling in those gaps of protection and enforcement, which I know is hard to do. And we're never going to get to a, I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where poaching disappears because we don't live in a perfect world. What I want to see happen is to get these animals past the point where it is that just constant threat looming over them, right? So I would love to see us close those gaps and solve the underlying problems that we talked about. Ultimately, that's what we as humanity need to do is figure out how to be a better community and solve these underlying, you know, economic issues that are driving people to participate in in things like this. So I think, you know, that that's what I would like to see focused on combined with these these attitude and behavior change, certainly. But it's yeah, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. I just I just think I guess to sort of wrap that up is to me when we talk about things like farming and allowing for some trade, we are making it easier to do the thing that we don't want people to do. And I understand it's coming from a different supply hopefully and that that's the idea behind it, but to me ultimately we're making it easier and I just think if we make something easier, more people are going to want to do it and so we're going to continue to increase that demand and by making something harder to do no we're not going to stop everybody but if we make it harder to do fewer people are going to participate yeah i i do think that the evidence against rhino legalization of farming is solid enough that i come down that that is not the solution i appreciate that there are a lot of different approaches to this mm-hmm. um basically we've we have generally approached it from a like penal perspective of like punishment protection based. This is a proposal to uh, attack it from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. What I think that you and I ideally want to see is the human first perspective, which right. is a, yeah addressing those issues that make this problem on both Absolutely. the poaching and consumption Purchasing, side. Yeah go down (laughs) um which is of course the hardest (laughs) long-term solution to to this i mean the conservation organizations make a good point that like when you say like well some of it's legal you basically just muddy all of your communication waters and i think that that's their biggest issue from like what they're trying to accomplish from their own own methods let alone like what population impacts are and what we found from elephant legalization is they think it led to the deaths of about a hundred thousand elephants after that legal sale and there are not a hundred thousand rhinos left no. so we can't really afford to mess around with a lot of experimentation right now well thanks sarah thanks for having this conversation with me i learned a lot so <laughs> i hope you did too thanks for putting all that together it is a thorny issue and uh it was good to walk through it
All right, stick around and we'll be back with our conclusion for the episode. All right, it is our time for our challenge of the week. Every week, Sarah and I give you a challenge that you can participate related to the subject at hand. And as we talked about last week, not a lot of things that most of us are interacting with on a daily basis in this episode as far as like direct rhino uh, connection. But we touched a little bit upon the philosophical issues surrounding this and the cultural issues. And so two things I kind of wanted people to think about and then one action that you can take. The first is to think about, reflect on yourself, and I want to think about this in the next week, is in what ways do I myself or my community show my wealth or, in you know, in invest in something that might have an environmental impact? So examples I've heard of before are things like BMWs, which might mm-hmm. have a terrible gas mileage and are terrible for the environment, but is a sign of status. Diamonds, we spoke about, have their own both environmental and ethical issues. We have our own status symbols here in the United States that we can't divorce from the environment just because they're not specifically a wildlife product. So what is that for you? What is that for your community? What are you seeing? How how do we think about that? Another is that we talked about connectedness to nature means that people are more likely to protect nature and follow nature-related laws. So how are we promoting a connectedness to nature within our own circles? And that's been a very big theme of A Little Greener is how do we get connected to nature? So take your 15 minutes of your nature walk this week, 15 minutes a day, being outside, gets you connected to nature, makes you feel better, healthier, all of that. And maybe think about those things while you're out on it. If you want to learn more, traffic.org is a really great website. It's an organization that really looks at wildlife and plant life as well, (laughs) trade across the world. They do a lot of initiatives for awareness raising. They do a lot of studies. So there's a lot of good information as far as learning more about how these systems work. Because I just kind of hovered on the top. There's probably 20 resources in the show (laughs) notes and there could have been a hundred more. So there's so much more to discuss when it comes to wildlife trafficking. And I hope this kind of gave you a little bit of a primer and you can find the parts that you're interested in and maybe dive a little deeper. Traffic.org is a good place to kind of start for that. Awesome. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, you can find us all over the place. We are on Facebook at A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. And you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.